Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You would think that the blind man who had received his sight from the miraculous intervention of Jesus had been plopped down at Camp X-Ray in Guantanamo Bay. Everywhere he turns, he and the people all around him are being vigorously interrogated. You can see this in some of the questions that are asked. They are posed to get the answers that the questioners want or to trigger a confrontation that the questioner thinks can be won. This can happen when an interrogator or interviewer isn't being objective, but instead is seeking to arrive at some foregone conclusion. If you question someone vigorously enough or long enough, sometimes you'll get the answers to the questions that you want. Sometimes you'll get the truth. But too often, you don't get both at the same time. Whether it's in journalism or in gathering intelligence, there are great risks that lead to the eventual downfall of using such a methodology. Chapter 9 of St. John's Gospel account, much of which we heard as our Gospel lesson for today, is full of questions, many of them questions that are pushing hard to get to the right answer. It's like a game of 20 questions. And coincidentally enough, that's exactly how many questions I counted in reading the entirety of chapter 9. 20. 20 questions in only 41 verses. The entire Bible, of course, is full of questions and answers from its beginning to its end. God asking man questions. Man asking God questions. And people questioning one another. Questions, of course, in and of themselves are not a bad thing. It's in questioning and getting answers to our questions that we learn. But there sometimes is the risk of asking the wrong questions or asking questions in the wrong way. What's even worse, however, is asking questions of someone who we have no business questioning, at least not in terms of his judgment. God wants us to ask. God wants us to pray, of course. But he doesn't want us to question him in a doubtful or skeptical way. He never wants us to question his goodness, his mercy, his love, or his word. Jesus said in praying to his Father, Thy word is truth, and we should be able to accept it as just that. We can ask questions, of course, for the purposes of understanding his word better, but we should always tread lightly when we step onto that slippery slope of questioning its truth or its purpose. Doing that is not only dangerous, but it's sinful. After all, what do you think was the very first question asked in the Bible? And who do you think asked it? Go ahead, think about that for a minute. I'll give you a hint. It's at the beginning of chapter 3 in the book of Genesis. Yes, I see some light bulbs going off all over out there in the pews. Yes, it was Satan that asked the very first question in the Bible. He approached Eve and said, Did God actually say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The very first question in the Bible, the one that began the destruction of God's perfect creation, came from the devil. And that question cast doubt upon God's word. 
You all know what happened right after that, too, don't you? The very first interrogation conducted by God himself. He didn't have to resort to pressure tactics, just simple questions that got right to the truth. It began with the Lord God seeking his beloved creatures and asking, Where are you? He knew full well, of course, because after all, he's God. And the questions proceeded from there. And even though he knew what all the answers were going to be, he gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to speak the truth, to admit their sin. And they do admit it, even with all of the finger-pointing they did toward God, toward each other, and toward the serpent along the way. And in the consequences that were handed out by God, there is severity and difficulty, but the Lord didn't destroy them outright. And yet there is also a note of absolution there and a giving of the hope of the Savior to come. The interrogation that went on in chapter 9 of St. John doesn't carry the same divine weight as that in the story of the fall from Genesis 3. In fact, of the 20 questions asked in John 9, only one of them is asked by Jesus. One more is asked by the disciples. The townspeople ask three. The man born blind asks three. And the ones that we Christians love to hate, those Pharisees, they ask an even dozen. The progression of these questions is somewhat informative for us. If we trace their pattern through this entire gospel narrative, we find that in many ways, these investigations and interviews parallel the journey of the entire human race in relationship to God. The disciples asked that first question, whether the man's blindness was due to his own sin or the sin of his parents. It was a prevailing thought in that day and age that all suffering and death was somehow the result of some specific sin committed by some specific person. The Jews had perhaps forgotten the words that their own King David penned in the Psalms. He wrote that he was not just a sinner, but that he indeed was sinful, even from his own conception. It wasn't a given sin that had caused the man's blindness, but rather his own fallen nature, inherited from one generation to the next. Jesus first clears up this misunderstanding about actual sin and original sin, and then he heals the man's blindness using spit and soil. From earth and from water, from the very substances from which God's infinitely complex creation sprang at his word, the uncreated Son of God makes a simple mud pie. And then the light of the world spoke to the man who lived in darkness. Go, be sent to Siloam, be washed, and let there be light for you. So the man went and washed, we are told, and he came home seeing. This causes quite a stir around the neighborhood, as you might imagine. This man, many of whom had known as the blind beggar for their entire lifetimes, could now see. It doesn't register with many of them for the same reason that we often can't accept the unexpected. This can't be him, some of them scoffed. It's just a look-alike. But the man himself, along with many others in the town, insists that indeed it is. Their story is later backed up by the man's parents themselves, who tell the Pharisees that this man is indeed their previously blind son. Ah, yes, the Pharisees. 
A blind man receives his sight, and their first concern, after finding out whether it really did happen and how, is whether or not any of their precious Sabbath laws were broken. Not a good thing this Jesus did for the blind man, some of them mutter. Nope, not at all. Healed on the Sabbath he did. That's a violation. That's not righteous. That's not godly. Others aren't so sure. Knowing that such power over the forces of nature cannot be the work of someone who doesn't have the power of the Lord of nature with him. So, like the townspeople, the Pharisees are a house divided, and we know that such houses cannot stand. The formerly blind man asked his opinion about his healer, gives him an emphatic endorsement. He is a prophet, he says. And indeed he is. For a prophet is not merely one who necessarily speaks of the future and predicts it, but a prophet is rather one who speaks on behalf of God. This isn't what the Pharisees want to hear, of course, so they summon the man's parents to provide further information. First, they want to establish whether this newly sighted man is indeed the one who had been born blind. Perhaps they're hoping that Jesus had pulled a fast one on them, a little switcheroo with some other person, a sighted person, who is now posing in the place of this blind beggar. If they can establish that, then Jesus will be discredited for this miracle, as well as being guilty of violating the Sabbath. It would be interesting to know, wouldn't it, if all of this investigation and interrogation was also taking place on the Sabbath. After all, there's nothing like a little hypocrisy to add another layer of complexity to this story. But we don't know for certain. It may have been the next day or even sometime later. Nevertheless, the Pharisees' questioning of the man's parents gains them nothing, so they turn once again back to him. They try to get him to confess that Jesus, the man who, had par- who had apparently had made him see, was a sinner. Now, whether they were trying to find out whether he had just sinned in this instance by healing on the Sabbath, or someone that they wanted to be labeled in general as unrighteous, it's hard to say. But you can start to see their creeping desperation, their desire to get at the answer that they want to hear. The healed man, however, doesn't take their bait. It's not for me to judge whether he's a sinner or not, he tells them. All I know for sure is that I can see And that's good enough for me. Now, they're on the verge of panic. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You can almost hear them shouting. At this point, the man has perhaps concluded that the Pharisees are a little bit dense because it reminds them that they've already heard the story and the story is not going to change. Maybe they need to hear it again so that they can become his followers too, he reasons a little too loudly, and that inference that they somehow want to have anything to do with Jesus in a positive sense finally sends them over the edge. In a statement that drips with theological overtones, they yell at the man, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We don't even know where this fellow came from. In this, the Pharisees make clear two facts. First, that they were captive to the law, and they were not open to hearing the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus had been preaching. Second, that they were conducting their investigation with a great deal of ignorance about their prime suspect. 
They were hard-hearted, and they were foolish, and they were frustrated. And after the healed man gives them a brief lecture about how God listens to the righteous but not the sinful, they close their ears as well as their hearts, and they cast him out of their synagogue. Can you see yourself in this gospel lesson? I certainly can. Sometimes I ask silly and ignorant questions of God. Sometimes I want to investigate something to find out just whose fault it was that things went wrong. Sometimes I want to know exactly how it is God did something or does things or will do them in the future. Sometimes I not only want to know why bad things can happen to people who try to live right, but I even want to know why good things can happen to people who seem very, very bad. And I'll bet you probably do the same. Our inquisitiveness is certainly among the many, many gifts that our Heavenly Father has given to us. But we often ask the wrong questions, or we ask questions of God when we should simply be looking and listening for His answers without our interrogation. In this we should all repent. We've got no more right or righteousness to ask God and question His Word than did the serpent in Genesis 3, or did Job when he was facing his afflictions. In questioning God's wisdom and God's fairness, Job set himself up for a withering barrage of questions from the Lord Himself. How dare you question me, mortal? Where were you when I created this world in all of its beauty and its complexity? God asks him. Yes, if you ever need a dose of humility and repentance after questioning God, give chapters 38 to 40 in the book of Job a read. You'll find yourself put in your place pretty quickly. And that proper place is this. You and I and the blind man and the Pharisees and all the townspeople and yes, even the disciples are all sinners. We not only have no business questioning God, we don't even have any business standing there silently in His presence. We too should be thrown out of the synagogue for all of our questions, all of our doubts, all of our evil thoughts, our cruel and slanderous and blasphemous words, and for just being by nature sinful and unclean, blind and stubborn. Yet when we are outside of that synagogue, put there for succumbing to the question, did God really say... Jesus sought us out. He finds us blind and begging. And first of all, He does a miraculous thing for us. He washes us in the pool of the sent ones. Indeed, in the pool of the called ones. And He takes away our inability to see Him, to trust Him, and to worship Him. And later, whenever He finds us once again on the outside, He repeatedly approaches us and asks once more that most important question that we can ever hear. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Because He first found us. Because He washed us and removed our blindness. We can say in all truthfulness, Lord, I believe. There's another important question in John chapter 9 too. One that doesn't appear in those selected verses that we heard read today. It's asked when the Pharisees are questioning the man a second time. And even though they're resistant to the man's story, they still have a need and a desire to hear how it is he had been healed by Jesus. 
They want the details. The man reminds them that they hadn't listened the first time, but he's willing to tell them once more if they insist. And in the same breath, he adds, do you want to become his disciples too? They don't, of course, and they get even angrier and more resistant to the good news of Jesus. And that's normal behavior for those who think that they might save themselves or those who think that they don't need a savior. But you and I, we are called to continue to ask both Jesus' question and the man's question of those whose sacred days and sacred houses and, yes, even sacred cows come into conflict with God's answers. We are to fulfill our own discipleship in finding others and asking, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you want to become His disciples too? As people of the Great Commission, don't be physically blind to the spiritually blind, the spiritually begging sinners all around you each day. Tell them the good news of Jesus. Bring them here to this place of washing where all of our human handicaps are stripped away, where we are nourished with miraculous divine food and have all of the truly essential questions answered by God in His Holy Word. Help everyone that you know to be able to join in the throng of those whose voices will join with the formerly blind man. Voices that will echo forevermore, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Amen.